ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. Coming up on the Money Beat Podcast, we talk to Jeff Graham, the author of Dear Chairman, The Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets and then some. Hi, this is Steve Grosser. I'm here with David Benoit and Jeff Graham, who's a hedge fund manager, an adjunct professor at Columbia, and he's now the author of Dear Chairman, The Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Uh, just right off the bat, Jeff, mm-hmm. what? Um, why did you decide to write this book? Well, it began as, as a collection of these original shareholder letters that I've been collecting. Um, I came of age in the industry, in the hedge fund business, in the, uh, in the early 2000s. Okay. And that was this, this era of the shame-driven activism. And you had lots of these you know, angry, public uh, 13D letters. Uh, Dan Loeb was known yeah, that for kind of the stuff. poison uh, Sure, Sure. So I collected those, and I thought, you know, I should uh, collect all these into a book. And I began to expand it to include, you know, uh, more letters from history. And it kind of evolved into the narrative history that the book became. So earlier this week, we had a nice post by David Benoit that sort of discussed you tracking down the, the, what might be the original Dear Chairman uh, letter by Benjamin Grant, who sort of I mean, in, in some ways, you give credit for giving birth to this, um, the, you know, the activist investor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was an exciting moment. I knew that there were a few letters that I had to get to make the book complete. There was the Ross Perot to GM, the Warren Buffett to American Express, and then the one that I had the hardest time with was the Ben Graham one, which he wrote in the 1920s to the Northern Pipeline Company. And I ultimately found it at the Rockefeller Foundation, at their archives. So what was Benjamin Graham pushing for back then? Can you give us a little bit of the history uh, there? Sure. Well, the main thing that Graham focused on um, in his investing were uh, were companies that were net-nets, that uh, were trading below the value of their liquid assets, subtracting all their liabilities. And so the Northern Pipeline Company, he discovered, had close to $100 worth of of liquid, high-quality bonds on their balance sheet that no one knew about. And the stock is is trading at sixty five bucks, and those bonds were completely non essential to their core business, and so he figured out that they owned them and was like, "Well, this will be great. I'll convince them to distribute those bonds. The shareholders will, you know, will do awesome, and they're still going to own the business afterwards." But he didn't understand that it was going to be extremely hard to get the management to do that, and that was the beginning of the whole story, basically. Sure. Uh, so, Jeff, one of the things that I thought you did a really good job in the book of is, is kind of bringing to life some of these not as well-known activist fights, right? You, you talk about coming out in the age of, of Dan Loeb, and, and certainly I think these days everything an activist does is covered, you mm-hmm. know, quite well. But there are a lot of kind of interesting moments in history, and, and right, Ben Graham I don't think would call himself an activist, but certainly the activists like to adopt him, and they also like to point to Buffett. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned this letter to American Express. This is something that actually came up earlier this year, right, when Bill Ackman brought it up in the middle of Valiant trying to compare himself to Warren Buffett, which maybe works, maybe doesn't, right? <laughs> will, you, will you tell us a little bit about this, this quote-unquote salad oil scandal? And, and Sure. I mean, it's an amazing case because, I mean, it was a big 
you know, financial collapse in the 60s. It was, um, you know, I was just um, having a discussion with Arthur Levitt, and he talked about, you know, uh, people forget about that now, but that was a very big crisis. It brought down a whole brokerage firm. They had, like, to, to, to stop the exchange for a whole day. Uh, what happened is there was this uh, swindler, uh, Tino DeAngelis, who had a soybean oil empire and had convinced the American Express Company to guarantee the value of his inventory so he would have liquidity to like to borrow money and like what he decided to do was to go and trade on on the commodity exchanges and American Express had guaranteed the value of 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 something like a billion pounds of soybean oil that it turned out was just uh, seawater that, <laughs> that Tino had had piped into his uh, big tanks that you you know and you still see those like when you fly into Newark like the big tanks <laughs> in Bayonne, New Jersey. And so, so fitting too that it's in New Jersey. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. And so American Express was was on the verge of of collapse. Like this was you know hundreds of, of millions of dollars of liability, and that company that was actually a joint stock uh, corporation. So if you held stock in American Express. And they collapsed, and the liabilities exceeded the value of the remaining assets. You know, then, like, then you as a shareholder could get assessed. Wow! And so people freaked out. They all, you know, they blew out of the stock, and and that's you know where Warren Buffett came in. He was uh, 33 years old, and he took a huge position in his fund in American Express, and they ultimately, you know, American Express uh, worked out a deal with their claimants. And it it gave the company a path uh, forward. And, like, ironically, at the last minute, the company got sued by shareholders that were arguing, hey, like, this uh, liability is at a subsidiary that you could just uh, file for bankruptcy so you don't have to pay this money. And Buffett uh, saw that happening, was like, look, they have to pay this. It's in their long-term interest, you know, not just to screw over all these claimants. And he intervened, uh, you know, not to kind of to, to scold the company, but to protect them and to defend their long-term value. And that was a, like a key turning point in his career because before that, that moment, he had done, you know, a lot of classic activist investing. Right. So, I mean, you look at the rise of activist investing and re- throughout the history, and, and it really, it seems to also tied with the increase in shareholding by, you know, um, people. I mean, you talk about in, like, you know, the early part of the century and, you know, up through the 20s, most companies were owned by a small group of insiders. That started to really change in, in the 50s. You see, you know, this dispersion of, you know, ownership. And, you know, and then the rise of, you know, pension funds and uh, after that. But... Um, back in like it was it was in the ni- late 1980s or early 90s with Ross Perot and mm-hmm. his letter to GM was another sort of seminal point in, um, in sort of act- the rise of activist investors. And I was wondering if you could get into to really why that was so important yeah. and why that sort of swung the pendulum back to shareholders. Yeah, I mean it's a key point in the book. You know, I kind of uh, frame it as the major turning point in governance, although. You know, you could argue that that was bound to happen anyway because uh, things were getting so bad for the institutional investors. So to back up a bit, uh, beginning in the 60s, like you saw like this concentration of share ownership that began to fall into the hands of these uh, fiduciary investors, the pension funds, insurance companies. Right. And through the 1980s, they began to, to dominate the markets, but they weren't that engaged with governance. And you... 
you know, what happened is the situation um, evolved like to where the big corporate uh, the big corporations were basically not held accountable at all. Uh, there was even a, a John Galbraith a, a quote about like uh, how like the world has evolved into this thing that you know the corporations have 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 no oversight. And in the early '80s, like you saw a lot of abuses, uh, you know, both at at the hands of the corporators, you know, with the green mail and that kind of stuff, but also you know from entrenched uh, CEOs. And the big institutions, uh, beginning in the early days, in the early '80s, began to realize, well, this is becoming a problem. Like a lot of these, you know, green mail deals are happening. Like you had some activists at Calpers that began to speak up, and then Ross Perot happened. So when Ross Perot, he was on the board of GM, he raised a fuss about their long-term strategy, about the the management uh, style of the CEO. And ultimately, uh, GM decided we have to get this guy off the board, and they paid him three quarters of a billion dollars to leave the board, and that and just that, that just blew it all open. And the, and the CEO was Roger Smith, right? Mm -hmm. Which yeah. is uh, many people might know better from Roger and me. Right? Same one. Correct. Yeah, <laughs> I, I <laughs> talk is, about that in the book. Even. Yeah, there's a quote. You know, there was a there was a great quote from uh, this guy Fred that was, you know, kind of the the key figure in that in that movie. He's the guy that like that does all of the uh, the evictions. And he's in Flint, and they talk to him, and, and someone asks him, um, asks him um, you know, they heard that he had had a job in the factory, like, like for 18 years or something like that. And, and they ask him, yeah, well, why'd you quit? That's a great job. And he was just like, I can't do it. That, it's a terrible job. <laughs> like, that place does bad things to your mind. It's like a prison. <laughs> and that was the way that that company was. That was, you know, like that was among the worst companies in the world at that point. Um, I think that's a good place to stop right now. We'll be right back after this with Jeff Graham and David Benoit. Hi, this is Veronica Dagger. Catch me midweek every week on Watching Your Wealth, where you learn all you need to know about building your wealth and protecting your money. Check us out at WSJ.com slash podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at WSJ Podcasts and become a subscriber on iTunes. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, Money Beat. Hi, welcome back. We're here with David Benoit and Jeff Graham, the author of Dear Chairman, the boardroom battles and the rise of shareholder activism. Uh, David, you had a question you wanted to get in. Yeah, on. Jeff, let's uh, let's move to talking about activism today. What what did you kind of what did you take away from from looking at this kind of progression, right? This this rise of activism. Mm -hmm. What do you what do you see happening out there today? And, and, and is it right? We, we briefly mentioned earlier. Ackman sort of alludes to the fact that he's just like Warren Buffett in the salad oil. Yeah. Scandal. Is is that is that a fair comparison? Well. You know, I think that we're at a very weird juncture, and, and I'll be curious to hear your thoughts, too, because, yeah. like, of you actually being on the beat, you know, where I'm not on the beat. But, um, you know, you know, these hedge fund activists have become, like, rock stars. They are like, a very big deal. They get a lot of attention. And, like, they really have emerged because of this uh, tacit uh, support behind the scenes from the big institutions. Yeah. Like, the big institutions have put themselves in a position where they're not I'm openly in support of activism, but they're like the arbiters behind the scenes, and they're deciding the activists to support and the ones to not support. And they have a lot of power, and yet you see some rumblings. In the last you know, two or three months, it seems like they're not quite happy with that role. They want more. And so you saw the open letter from Larry Fink to the CEOs of S&P 500 yep. companies. You saw 
uh, someone uh, broke the story, like that Jamie Dimon had convened a group of bigwigs in the pension fund world, including even uh, Warren Buffett, to talk about the, you know, um, how to promote, you know, long-term governance. Like you saw right. this, like this long-term um, S&P index, which I wrote about. Um, and so they're trying all these things to kind of, to come out of the shadows to figure out, well, like we've been doing this, supporting these activists behind the scenes, but it's not enough. We need to do more to promote a long-term uh, governance agenda. And I'm fascinated. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'll be fascinated to see what they come up with because I think it's, it's, it's a really thorny problem and it's not clear that there are, uh, you know, best practices like, to drive the system forward. It's, it strikes me as like Warren Buffett's sort of comments that last year at his meeting, you know, his 50th Murray meeting and his comments this weekend and his annual letter sort of speak to the sort of Two sides of the uh, the activist investing world. We know he. I think it was last year he called them sort of sharks that sort of keep needing to sw- uh, swim and are short term focused. And then you know this year he took a, a you know he softened his stance and you know was referring to the you know the <laughs> corporate you know a lot of corporations forget and a lot of managers forget that their job is to rep, you know is uh, to the shareholders the owners of the company and whether that's just incompetence or you know greed or you know whatnot um and so the, you know he was admitting to the role and the need for activists there but on a lot of on the other hand i think what you're seeing is a, in, is a lot of people worried about the short termism yeah. that activists bring like the, you know you know using a lot of you, you know in the, in a world where we have low debt um or low, you know low interest rates you know, and debt's cheap you can you know buy back shares in this mm-hmm. and is is this the in the long term interest and now also companies historically are not very good at buying back their own shares yeah well there like are two points there i mean uh like on the buffett thing i mean he's clearly in an interesting spot because he has uh, gone after a few particular activists oh, yeah. but he ultimately knows that that governance in our country is not great and that accountability is good, and these activists, you know, bring accountability. So he hasn't come down as as hard on them as you might think. And you know, the share repurchase issue is a classic example of an issue where there's no best practice, right? Yeah. Because if a company uh, buys back its shares at the right time, if their shares are undervalued, it creates a tremendous amount of value. There is this um, Buffett d- described that in his letter, I think, two or three years ago. Like, yeah. well, his his theory a theory on buying back shares. I mean, and lots of the best performing, uh, you know, well, public companies in history in terms of stock price performance, it really has been driven by, you know, by opportunistic buybacks. Yeah. And so then you have that like that can be a huge, you know, well, powerful uh, um, a lever. But then on the other hand. If you buy back at the wrong time, it destroys value, and it's just a squandering of your capital. But how do you fix that problem? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it, like if you're the shareholder of a public company, then like then you think the stock's cheap, and so you want the company to buy back shares. And the short-termism isn't just you know a, a product of activism either. I mean, this has been you know sort of we're seeing this with like the whole idea about corporate I mean quarterly earnings too. Well, so that mm-hmm. I, I mean, just yesterday, Jeff Immelt argues this. He put out his his annual letter for General Electric and said, "Listen, I have problems with with we are underowned by the institutional investors. We've we've proven that we're a good stock." He says, uh, "I don't understand why more people haven't bought into us." 
I have short-term shareholders pushing onto me. And he defends the activists. He says, obviously, there are some, and every time we talk about this, right, there are some activists that are bad actors mm-hmm. in some cases. Um, but he says, shame on us if we're, if we're not correcting our problems and have to wait for an outsider to come tell us these things. Yeah. I, I, mean, I think that's right. And I think the whole, you know, the issue of short-termism is a hard debate because clearly we're all you know, biased towards the short term right. uh, sure. by human nature. And you see this in management teams and you see it in boards and you see it in shareholders. And as a group, our shareholder activists, you know, are more prone to short termism than like than anyone else. I mean, there are people that argue it. I, I don't see compelling evidence that's true. Yeah. And also you need to be able to, you don't want to wait till the problems too far down the road. Yeah. Like, no, I mean, they are competent management. You want to be able to. Right. Yeah, they're right. not patient. That is yeah. clear. But That's does a, that mean that they're short-term oriented? No. no. I, I've long kind of argued, I think, what, what, what we're getting at here, that um, activism only exists because of this vacuum between the owners, right, the, the long-time shareholders or, or any shareholders and, and management. And, and activism's in the last few years particularly, I think, really seized on this idea of, well, we have ideas. We, we're... we're we're idea generators. Sometimes it's buybacks. Sometimes it's splits. Sometimes it's, you know, specifics on costs and stuff. Uh, and we're going to put these ideas out there. And they've been winning hearts and minds of these shareholders because, well, it's a new idea. It's 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 a way yeah. to fix the stock, right? That could all go away if if Larry Fink and Jamie Dimon's groups, uh, you know, manage to to get the shareholders putting forward those ideas, right? And talking about these things behind the scenes, but. The flip side of that is these index funds that are consolidating the ownership don't have the resources to to do it, right? They, yeah. don't, they don't have these groups. They don't have these portfolio managers because it's just all, all you know, I mean, most based people, on the index. Most people are, you know, outside of a, of a very few, are completely divorced from the ownership, I mean, of the, of the companies, you know, the stock right. that they, they have invested in. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird situation. If the the indexing movement and the ETF movement continues unabated, um, and these things can go in waves, so you know you could see, especially on the ETF side, yeah. like you know, I mean, you could see that pull back. But you are going to have a situation where you have a few uh, parties like a Vanguard with incredible market power. It's unclear how they're really going to be uh, wielding it, and I think that does afford the you know well um, any activists or people uh, with ideas like can have a quick you know um, entree into the boardroom if they just get the support of a few people right. and like that's already been developing but it's just going to become you know more extreme i mean one of the things i think that is is sort of fascinating is the sort of evolution. I mean, a lot of the shareholders letters that you sort of profile mm-hmm. in, 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 in sort of battles you profile were with people that were, had, were owning the company and basically said, like, I have enough. Like, there's mm-hmm. enough. I, I also <laughs> like how you started out in the introduction with the, the shareholder in the, in the Cubs. The Chicago Cubs. <laughs> and, and, it's a great story. You know, yes. I, you know, I came close to making that a whole chapter on yeah, the guy. Yeah. Like, he sued the Chicago Cubs to put the lights on Wrigley Field. But I mean that was having a serious a impact era. on their on like I was shocked four thousand people were turning out to Cubs games during the week, uh, yeah. And and you wonder why the Cubs haven't won a World Series <laughs> since what nineteen oh eight? Am I right there? Nineteen oh eight. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it really speaks to you know the evolution is now you have 
you know, share, you know, activist shareholders going out targeting companies that they see undervalued, but also the scope of what they're able to target yeah. now. I mean, like Apple, yeah, yeah, um, totally. P and G. I yeah. mean, you know, and the, I mean, yeah, the book is about how we got to that point, yeah. but it also it kind of shows like. Like there's no formulas. It's like in every chapter there like are nuances like that make you realize it's not black and white. There's no clear answers. Oh, this is good or this is bad, and it's going to be extremely um, hard. Like you know, for anyone like a Jamie Dimon or a Warren Buffett to be like, well, here's the way to fix this thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're you know we're at the point now where even if you're Microsoft, like unless like you have yeah. like the voting control tied up like in a Google or something like that then like you're open to attack. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you for joining us. I'm Steve Grosser. I've been joined by Jeff Graham, who's the author of Dear Chairman, The Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Um, join us later in the week for Friday's financial food fight. Thanks a lot. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.